you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. I began uh, what I think is going to be a nine-part uh, series of sermons uh, on the Holy Spirit uh, last Lord's Day, a topical series of sermons, and we're going to be moving from text to text and looking at lots of different scripture passages as we go through the messages. Uh, last week I began with uh, the question, who is the Holy Spirit? And I had a three-part answer. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing or an it, not an influence or a power. He is a person. Uh, he is also God, not just any person. He is a divine person, a part of the Trinity, and also that he is the manifestation of God's presence in the world, and that we have him with us at all times, a part of God's omnipresence over his creation and with his people. Uh, this morning we're going to deal with the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we look this morning at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. As we read, let us again remember this is God's word. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise, like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language, to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, who hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they were all continued in one amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. And that is God's word. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you as we have this opportunity to come together around your word, that you would bless us, that you would uh, give us humility, and that you would give us grace. Father, we want to learn and we want to know, but we want to grow. We want to grow to be more like Jesus. And so I pray that would be our ambition today. And through everything that we study and learn, we would be pointed to him to see how it is that we can live more fully for him, to be more obedient to him as a result of our love for him. And so give us grace this morning. Be our teacher. Be our instructor. Open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the verses I read this morning, which describe for us the event that we know as Pentecost, 
have been some of the verses of the most earnest debate and contention in the church, especially over the last 200 years. The Neo-Pentecostal movement has generated a lot of controversy. One of the things it has done is tended to divide God's people into two groups, and that's the haves and the have-nots, those who have the full blessing of the Holy Spirit and those apparently who do not. The charismatic movement, which takes much of its momentum from this particular passage, has taken portions of the church by storm. And there are those who believe that a Pentecost experience, similar somewhat to what we read about in Acts 2, is essential for you as a believer to experience the true blessing of the Christian life. Now it's obvious that our church does not hold to that particular position because we're not pushing you to that or encouraging you to try to experience that. Well, does that mean that somehow we minimize the significance of Pentecost? These are important questions. Does that mean that we somehow minimize the significance of Pentecost? Does it mean that we're missing out on something spiritually? Does it mean that we're neglecting a major part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Does it mean that we don't grasp or understand or appreciate the fullness of what took place here in Acts chapter 2? I trust that none of those things are accurate. My topic this morning is the gift of the Holy Spirit, the significance of Pentecost in the life of the believer. Now we're going to look at Acts 2 this morning, but we're not going to look at it in isolation. Rather, we're going to try to look at it in the what I call the flow of biblical history. To put that in another way, we're going to try to look at Acts 2 in the context of all of Scripture. Because you can't understand what is taking place here in Acts 2 without seeing it in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. And so what I'm going to do this morning is try to give you an overview of the Holy Spirit in all the Bible. We're going to do four things this morning. First, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Then we're going to look at the Holy Spirit in the Gospels. Then we're going to look at the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And then finally, the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer today. Now you may be thinking, that's a lot. It is a lot. Two things about that. One is, I'm going to have to be a bit brief at times, perhaps so brief at points it might be a bit frustrating to you. The other is, just fair warning, this sermon is a little bit longer than what I normally preach. And my wife has a gentle way of correcting me sometimes. And sometimes after a rather lengthy sermon, my wife will say to me, that would have made two good sermons. <laughs> I don't know about good, but uh, this, this probably would have made two. So um, with that uh, fair warning in mind, let's proceed to what is before us. And the first thing I want us to do is to consider the, the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It is true that the Holy Spirit is mentioned much less in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. But does that mean that the work of the Holy Spirit was not important to Old Testament believers? Absolutely not. The Holy Spirit was very active in very specific ways at very specific times in the Old Testament period. However, his work was more infrequent 
and it was less visible than during the New Testament. But what it did was it gave God's people a sense of yearning for something more, an anticipation for something greater than they experienced then. For that reason, I'm calling the Old Testament period the time of anticipation of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament was a period of yearning and of anticipation. I pointed out last week that uh, the Holy Spirit is eternal. has always been. In the very beginning of the Bible, the very earliest chapter and verse of the book of Genesis, we find the Holy Spirit present. Genesis 1, verse 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters of the earth. And right after that, God spoke and there was light. Later in Genesis chapter 1, we saw that the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit consulted among themselves to make man and to make man in his own image. And we find in Genesis chapter 2 that God breathed into man the breath of life. We saw last week that the Holy Spirit is the wind or the breath of God. It's my contention that the Holy Spirit breathed into man and breathed into Adam the life-giving spirit in which he became a living soul. What we find in the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit coming upon people at particular times to enable them to accomplish specific tasks or carry out specific things. For example, Moses had the Holy Spirit. If you go with me to the book of Numbers and we're going to be kind of taking a journey through the the Old Testament now and then we're going to take a little journey through the Gospels later. If you go to Numbers chapter 11 and we find that Moses and the 70 elders of Israel had the Holy Spirit. Numbers 11 and verse 25. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, that is to Moses. And he, that is God, took of the Spirit who was upon him and placed him, that is placed the Holy Spirit, upon the seventy elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. But they did not do it again. If you go over to chapter 27 of Numbers. This is uh, the account of Joshua. Joshua also had the Holy Spirit. This is really the account of what we would call Joshua's ordination ceremony. When he was set apart for the task to which God had called him. Numbers 27 and verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man who in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. And so Joshua had the Holy Spirit. If you go over to Judges chapter 14, this is the account of Samson. Samson, a very familiar man in the Bible. Samson in his long hair and Samson in his strength. Judges 14, verses 5 and 6. 
Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. Verse 6, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that he tore him as one tears a young goat. Though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. For the sake of time, we won't turn there. But you know, David had the Holy Spirit. And one of David's fears was because of his sin, God would take the Holy Spirit from him. In his great prayer of confession in Psalm 51, part of that prayer is, Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Micah had the Holy Spirit. In Micah 3, we read where Micah says, I am filled with power. Then he goes on to say, I am filled with the Spirit of the Lord. If I had time, I could go to other individuals in the Bible who experienced the presence or the power of the Holy Spirit to enable them to do specific things. Now, the work of the Holy Spirit was different then than it is today. Because even though believers had the Holy Spirit and even though the Holy Spirit would come upon them at certain times to enable them to do specific things, they did not have the full presence and blessing of the Spirit of God. But there was, again, a sense of yearning, of anticipation for something more. If you go to the book of Ezekiel, if you can't find Ezekiel, it's the verse printed on the front of your bulletin this morning. Ezekiel chapter 36. Verses 26 and 27. For God says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And then if you go over to the prophecy of Joel, which as we will see, is the prophecy that um, Peter makes reference to. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, God says, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So even though the Holy Spirit was present in the Old Testament and even though the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament and even though he filled and empowered people in the Old Testament, there was a real sense of yearning, of anticipation for something more, for more of God's presence, for more of God's spirit. And the, it's clear that there are prophecies in the Old Testament that say that more was to come. The Old Testament is a time of anticipation for the Holy Spirit. Second, what do we find in the Gospels about the Holy Spirit? That is in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There we see the promise of the Holy Spirit. So we move from the anticipation of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament to the promise of the Holy Spirit in the Gospels. Specifically the promise that the giving of the Spirit was nearby or close at hand. 
That's one of the primary promises given by John the Baptist, who was, of course, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3, we're going to spend a few minutes in the Gospel of Luke. It's very interesting to me, just while you're looking up the Gospel of Luke, that when you come to the beginning of uh, the Gospels and the advent of Christ, the coming of Jesus, two things are prominent. One is the presence of the angels. Boy, there are angels everywhere in the early portions of the gospel surrounding the birth of Jesus. And there's evidence of not just the presence of, but the promise of the Holy Spirit as well. If you look in Luke uh, chapter chapter 3 and verse uh, 16. the very end this is the promise John the Baptist gave he that is Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire and you might remember that John's uh, Jesus baptism the Holy Spirit came down rested upon him in the form of a dove and we're told it remained upon him and so throughout Jesus ministry we find evidence of both the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. If you look back with me to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke and we'll see some of that evidence of his presence. Luke chapter 1 really describes John the Baptist, the angel's prediction of his birth to his father Zacharias. And this is what one of the things that the angel told to Zacharias about John, John the Baptist. Luke 1 and verse 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. You go over to verse 67. Which describes Zacharias and his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied and he gives the prophecy that he gave. You might recall also that uh, later when uh, Mary visited, actually it's before that, if you go back to uh, verse, uh, uh, in Luke chapter 1, and verse 41, when Mary visited Elizabeth, it says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So, John the Baptist would be filled with the Spirit, Elizabeth fills with the Spirit, Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit as well. And then if you go with me to Luke chapter 4. Which begins with the account of the temptations. Verse four, chapter 4 verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. Then down to verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And so you have at the very beginning of the gospel accounts, not just the promise that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire, but also a clear manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit in a way it hadn't been present in the Old Testament John the Baptist, Elizabeth, Zacharias, Jesus, all filled with or experiencing the presence 
of the Holy Spirit uh, in their lives. What a testimony of the beginning of the promise of the Holy Spirit to us. You might recall that during uh, Jesus' ministry, we're told that he cast out demons and did it by the work of the Holy Spirit. When he was talking to you on prayer, he said, How will the Father not give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Clear insinuation that the Father would give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. When he was talking to his disciples, sending them out two by two, saying, you'll be arrested, but don't worry in that day what you'll say. It's not you who speak, it's the Holy Spirit who will speak through you. And then we move to the very end of Jesus' life where he really began to talk about the promise of the Holy Spirit. If you go to Luke, or excuse me, John chapter 7, we're going to spend a few minutes in the Gospel of John. John chapter 7. In verse 39. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. We're going to see there's a real connection between the ascension of Jesus, the glorification of Jesus, and the sending of the Spirit. And here the Bible says the Spirit is not yet given. He will be given, not yet given, because Jesus is not yet glorified. Go over with me to John 14. Verses 16 and 17. We've referred to these before. We'll refer to these more as we go through this series of sermons. 14, 16. I will ask the Father, Jesus says, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. If you go over uh, to verse 26 of that same chapter, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And then over to chapter 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, notice how earnestly and often Jesus is promising the gift of the Spirit. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about me. And over to chapter 16, verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Remember Jesus said, or the Bible had said, the Holy Spirit won't come until Jesus is glorified. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage I go away. For if I do not go away, the Holy Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then down into verse 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. This is right at the very end of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. He's making this repeated promise that he will send the Holy Spirit. And then right before his ascension, if you go with me to Luke chapter 24... where it becomes extremely fascinating. Luke chapter 24. 
This is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, right before his ascension. Jesus said this, verse 49. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. Hang on to that. The promise of my Father upon you. And you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Hang on to those two things. The promise and the power. And go with me to Acts chapter 1. Yeah, we're getting closer to Acts 2. Acts chapter 1. Verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. For everything he said in Luke 24, to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then verse 7. It is not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses, he says. The promise and the power. Both in Luke 24 and in Acts 1. And they both relate to the Holy Spirit. The promise of God. Confirmed and affirmed. Through Jesus is the gift of the Holy Spirit and the power to live the Christian life is through the Holy Spirit as well. So we've looked at the anticipation of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, the promise of the Holy Spirit in the Gospels, and now we turn to Acts chapter 2 in the third place and look at the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit. We find in Acts 2 simply cannot be separated from what we've already seen this morning in the Old Testament and in the Gospels. It is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to send another helper. Jesus said, I'm going to spend, send another helper. The Spirit of truth, he'll be with you forever. And we find that taking place right here in the text we read this morning from Acts chapter 2. The disciples had been instructed to wait. To wait on the coming of the Holy Spirit. They were to be Jesus' witnesses, but they were not able to do that on their own or by their own strength. They were to wait, wait, wait until the Holy Spirit was given, the promise was fulfilled, and the power of God was granted upon them. And so the disciples followed Jesus' instructions. We believe they waited for about 10 days after his ascension into heaven. Uh, Jesus was on earth for 40 days after his uh, death and resurrection, ascended into heaven. Pentecost, that was what was taking place in Acts chapter 2, also known as the Jewish Feast of Weeks, occurred 50 days after uh, the Passover. And so we think that given the 40 days thereabouts and the 50 days thereabouts, they waited for about 10 days, 120 of them, in a particular location waiting and praying. And then we're told in verse 2. I'll go ahead and read verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly, it says, suddenly, what had been so keenly anticipated in the Old Testament, and so accurately, specifically promised in the Gospels, is fulfilled right here in Acts chapter 2. 120 people in the room when it takes place. And when it happened, three things occurred. One is that there was a noise of a violent rushing wind. Look with me at verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. Do not miss that. This is the sound of a tornado, if you will. The sound not just of wind, of a breeze. It's a violent rushing wind. A wind that could be heard across the city because... We're told later in this chapter it was that noise of the wind that attracted the attention of the people who were in the city of Jerusalem there for Pentecost, brought them out into the streets to say, what is happening? You find that in verse 6. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together. Remember I said last week, and I think I mentioned earlier just a few moments ago that both the Hebrew and the Greek words for spirit are the translated wind or breath. I mentioned earlier also that it was the Holy Spirit who breathed into man the breath of life. And here God is breathing into His people the Holy Spirit giving to them the gift that had been anticipated and had been promised. It's a sovereign work of God. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus when he said, you must be born not just of water, but also of the Spirit. He said the Spirit is like the wind. The wind blows wherever it wills. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. You only see the effects of it. The wind is directed by the mighty, sovereign hand of God. And here, the Spirit of God is directed in that way. Here, God, at this appointed time, sends forth His Spirit upon His people. It was a sovereign act of God to be done in His time and in His way. Another thing that happened was that tongues of fire came upon their heads. Verse 3. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. What did John said? Had John said? John said, He will baptize you with the Spirit and fire. Fulfilled. Imagine. Imagine being in that room. Here you are, 120 other people. You've heard this violent, rushing wind. And now you look about you and you see on everyone's head a flame of fire. And yet even though there is fire in the room, no one is burned and no one's hair is even singed. What does the fire symbolize? It symbolizes the presence of God. Do you remember the story of the burning bush when Moses saw this amazing thing? A bush that was what? On fire, there was flame. It wasn't being consumed. The leaves weren't being singed. And that bush represented the presence of God. You might remember later that Moses or 
Moses and the people were led by God, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Right of Hebrews says our God is a consuming fire. And here as these tongues of fire rest upon their heads, it symbolizes the presence of God through his spirit upon them. Then the other thing that happened was they were given the ability to speak in languages they had not learned. I want to read again for you verses 4 through 11. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem. More accurately, Jews staying in Jerusalem. Devout men and women from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians, Medes, and it goes through the whole list again. Verse 11, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. Now, this is absolutely crucial to understanding the significance of Pentecost. Look back with me at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus told them, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what will happen? You shall be my witnesses. Where? Both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. The book of Acts is really the unfolding of what is told in Acts 1.8. The expansion of the gospel, beginning with Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. What was the very first thing that the people who were filled with the Spirit did? They began to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you see, Acts 1.8 didn't wait until the end of the gospel era and the epistles to be fulfilled, it began to be fulfilled right here on the day of Pentecost. There were people from Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and the othermost parts of the earth right there in the city, and they heard the sound of the wind, and they came out and said, what is happening? And they saw these disciples, these Galileans, come out from the room and begin to talk in their own language, not the Galileans' language, their language, the language of the Cappadocians and those from the remotest parts of the earth. And what were they saying? They were telling of the mighty deeds of God. They were bearing witness to Christ, to who he was and to what he has done. That's why Luke gives us this rather laborious list of nations who are represented there, they heard the gospel. They heard the good news. The gift of the Holy Spirit empowered the church to carry out its mission. You shall be my witnesses. Then fourth, what do we find about the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer? That is in our lives, your life, and in my life. How does all that relate to us? The anticipation of the Old Testament promise in the New Testament the fulfillment in Acts 2 at Pentecost now to a large extent the remainder of this series of sermons is going to focus right there what is the significance of it 
How does it impact? How does this impact you? How does it impact me? We're going to look at what it means to, to live in the Spirit, to pray in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to experience the power of the Spirit, to show forth the fruit of the Spirit. But what do we find here in this story of Pentecost? What significance does it have to you as a believer this morning? You need to understand that Pentecost is one of the major transition points in redemptive history. It is really the last act of the drama of redemption until the second coming of Christ. Where God pours forth of his spirit upon his people and enables them to be his witnesses. We are now in what Joel called the last days. These are the days of the spirit. We are blessed, folks. We are blessed to live post-Pentecost when the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon all mankind. That's what Peter said in Acts chapter 2 when he quoted from Joel in his sermon. Verse 17, It shall be in the last days, God said, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. You see what Peter did when all the people gathered out in the street saying, what in the world is taking place? He preached a gospel sermon. And 3,000, 3,000 were brought to faith. Jews and Gentiles alike received the Holy Spirit. It's poured out upon all mankind. And those who repent and believe in Jesus have the Holy Spirit. It is God's gift. It is God's gift to his people. I was with someone this week I just met. They were a believer, and we began to talk about the church, and they said, asked me what I was preaching on now. And I said, well, I'm just starting a series of sermons on the Holy Spirit. And they said, oh, are you open to the Holy Spirit? I said, sure. Of course I'm open to the Holy Spirit. Maybe not in the way that you think, but I'm absolutely. But then I began to think, you know, the question is just a little bit misguided. Open to the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. He was poured out upon God's people here at Pentecost in Acts 2. Poured out upon all mankind. And we're going to look at that more clearly next week when we talk about conversion and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But it's your blessing, it is your gift that God has given to us. But then realize, and finally concluding, why the Holy Spirit was given. What was the main purpose here in Acts 2? It was so that they would have power. Power to do what? Power to bear witness. Power to share the gospel. Power to to give the good news, to withstand whatever stood in their way to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I would submit to you this morning, how do we know that the Spirit of God is present among us? What is the clearest way today that you know as a believer Christ by the Holy Spirit is in you? Or how do we know as a church that the Spirit of God is here? It must be, folks, it must be a passion for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus Christ. If we're just sitting what God has given to us here, the Holy Spirit is not moving among us. And I will say that of myself. If I'm not passionate to share the gospel, the good news. And I have to ask myself, 
Maybe I'm not open to the Holy Spirit. You understand? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? To be led by the Holy Spirit? To be empowered with the Holy Spirit? How do we know the Spirit of God is among us if it's not enabling us to be His witnesses? Here. In Judea. In Samaria. In Romania. In Africa. In Belize. Folks, being filled with the Spirit is evidenced by being passionate about the gospel, about the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why we ought to pray that the, the light of the gospel would shine forth from this place. And when people come to North Point, they would experience the transforming, life-changing power of the gospel. That they would be able to say, you know, there's something happening there. There's something different there. God is changing lives there. That's the evidence. May God give it to us. And may we rejoice in it, delight in it, this great gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And we pray this morning that you would help us to rejoice in the gift anticipated, promised, and fulfilled. And now realized by us to rejoice in the gift and to see evidence of it among us in clear and visible ways as we have a passion for the gospel and the difference it makes in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.